programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Summerfest Arts Fair, Father's Day weekend in downtown Logan, Utah, featuring local and regional musicians including Peter Breinholt, jazz musician Joe McQueen, and Leaping Lulu. LoganSummerfest.com. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. Our subject is uh, iconic Utah outfitter Ken Slight and uh, Glenn Canyon. And I uh, thought we'd uh, go into the program today with a portion of a song. This is by, by Susan Bush of the Susan Bush Band. This is called Ken's Song. When it is morning Just to smell the catfish frying and a sizzling in the pan. I wonder how I blundered. I left my shoes upstream. Oh, but I'll soon be back sitting on a west end. Susan Bush of the Susan Bush Band, uh, Ken's Song. We're talking about Ken Slight uh, there. And uh, there's a new exhibit, museum exhibit, Glen Canyon, A River Guide Remembers. That is uh, exhibiting now. I was about to say playing now, but I guess exhibiting now. Available now at the uh, John Wesley Powell River History Museum in Green River, Utah. And we're remembering Glenn Canyon on the program today and Ken Slight. We're also going to be hearing on tape from Ken Slight, Katie Lee, Vaughn Short, and others. And we have with us in studio Martha Hamm, who led the creation of this exhibit. Martha Hamm, welcome back to Access Utah. Thank you. Uh, we have with us on telephone Davian Nelson, who is uh, one half of Public Radio's Kitchen Sisters. And uh, we'll hear some yep. excerpts from uh, Cry Me River, uh, one of your pieces. Davian Nelson, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. You have me in kitchen. Well, that's right. You have, really, you're in kitchen. Okay, excellent. I am in my kitchen. <laughs> Actually, <to> you in Utah. <laughs> hidden kitchens and the hidden world of girls. <laughs> so we have you in uh, in in kitchen, and we also welcome uh, Frederick Swanson, author and river historian. Uh, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Glad to be with you. I should say welcome back to the program. We've had you on before. Uh, thank you. So, um, all return visitors to to the program. Let me start with uh, Martha Ham. Um, Ken Slide, of course, uh, famous outfitter, iconic. Um, if people know uh, Ed Abbey and the Monkey Wrench Gang, uh, uh, Ken Slide appears as seldom seen Smith, right? Correct, correct. How I know Ken uh, is I met him 40 years ago when he was actually friends with uh, Ed Abbey and the Monkey Wrench Gang had just come out, but... I came to him to ask him to facilitate river trips for people with disabilities. And I had approached all the outfitters in the association about it, and he was my last hope. And I walked up to him, and he said, I've been waiting for you. (laughs) He said, let's do this thing. Mm. And so that was the beginning of our relationship, and most people don't know that, but um, another thing that, that Ken has pioneered uh, here in Utah is uh, commercial river trips for people with disabilities. And that went on to begin the organization Splore, which many of you are familiar with, I'm sure. Mm. So anyway, our friendship has continued through the years. And being associated with Ken, um, you know, you you just find yourself loving rivers and canyons more deeply than you thought you could and wanting to preserve and conserve 
what has happened in this last couple of years is wanting to support Ken in finishing his book. And then it, it, it occurred to us that maybe one way to move ahead was to do a museum exhibit. And we got excited about that because we realized some people won't read a book, but they might walk through a museum for 15 minutes, 40 minutes, two hours, and learn something about Glen Canyon. So that was the genesis of our exhibit. Hmm. David Nelson, you would have, uh, I guess you would have met Ken uh, through Crimea River, or was it before? Yes, it was through Crimea River and through knowing Martha. Martha and I have been Mm -hmm. river rafting together for over 40 years, and all the issues uh, surrounding rivers, the beauty, the magic, but also the the endangerment of rivers and the damming of some of the wild rivers of the West has always been front and center in my mind. And public radio listeners probably know Jay Allison from The Moth and all yes. his many, um, many wonderful projects. He was doing a project called Stories from the Heart of the Land, and he invited Nikki and I to create one of the documentaries. It could be about anything environmental. And I am the phrase, cry me a river, just leapt to my head and my heart. And I just knew we would, from Martha's tales of Ken and of Katie, and then from knowing about Mark Dubois here in California, who chained himself to a rock in order to stop the filling of the Stanislaus, the damming of the Stanislaus River here in the 70s, these pioneering river activists became the focal point. And Martha actually produced that story with us. So that's what led me to Ken. And I must say, seldom seen is an apt name for Ken (laughs) (laughs) if you're trying to do a documentary about him. So I support this exhibit. you got to come at Ken in a lot of different directions if you want to kind of capture that lightning in a bottle. (laughs) Uh, Frederick Swanson, uh, did you connect up through your uh, work with Dave Rust? Is that how you connected with Ken Slate? I'd actually known Ken uh, some years prior to that and uh, before my book. But um, I did learn that uh, Ken had obtained several of Dave Rust's boats that he used to float Glen Canyon in the 1920s and 1930s. And Ken has a tremendous interest in river history, as as did Dave Rust. So there's kind of a continuation there. Hmm. I want to uh, jump into talking about uh, Glen Canyon. And you heard in that song, Susan Bush of the Susan Bush Band, uh, If Only in My Dreams, right? There's there's an elegiac uh, quality there. And in fact, the uh, the exhibit uh, title, Martha Ham, Glen Canyon, A River Guide Remembers, it's in the past, right? Uh, Correct. So this canyon's all filled up. Uh, let's hear uh, a, a selection from Crimea River from the Kitchen Sisters. This is a, a brief description of uh, Glen Canyon. Canyon was 184 miles of pure Eden with 125 side canyons. Colorado Plateau on one side, up to the Cummings Mesa on the other side, up to Navajo Mountain, and each canyon had its own personality, its own little call, that beautiful, beautiful Navajo sandstone. God, there's nothing like walking. It's such sexy rock. Major Powell named it Glen Canyon. John Wesley Powell, he was an early explorer, ran in 1869 and 1871 down through the Green and Colorado Rivers. One-armed general, he lost at the Battle of Shiloh. But he sat there on the, on the boat in an armchair, and his boatmen were boating him along. He called it Glen Canyon. A glen is a little retreat up a little side canyon. Columbine and a little pool of water. Ruins everywhere, petroglyphs and pictographs. Glen Canyon was the nursery. It was a quiet place in the river where things had a chance to grow, where evolution happened. And that went down into the Grand Canyon and kept it the pure and beautiful place it was when I first ran it. So that is a, a piece from uh, Crimea River, description of uh, Glen Canyon. Who, who's speaking there? Is that Davy Nelson? Katie Lee. That is Katie That's Lee. Katie okay. Lee, All right. Along with Ken. Yeah, we've featured yeah. the two. And you kind of can't uh, tell the story of Ken in part without telling the story of Katie and vice versa, even though they were both independent 
constantly on the river, but their passion for it and their commitment to it and their how the river affected them. You know, you can just hear the rapture in their voice, that just spiritual connection to the canyon, to the place, to nature. Let me, I'd like to hear about, uh, and maybe we'll, we have a couple of clips from Crime River, but I'd maybe have, rather have the, our guests here t- tell me about these two iconic figures, maybe starting with uh, Katie Lee. Uh, Davy Nelson, you want to start start out here? She's, I understand, from Crime River. She's started out in Hollywood. Yeah, she did. She came um, to the West, to Hollywood, in the early 50s, and there she was, sort of a budding starlet, you know, scrambling, getting bit parts, finally finding her way onto a radio drama. If you hear that piece, Crimea River, you'll hear a little snatch of that. She's in uh, Gildersleeves. And a friend of hers, in the meantime, shows her a little uh, film footage of grafting the Grand Canyon. And it was love at first sight. She was smitten. It was like she had the scent. And ultimately, she went on the Grand Canyon, just fell madly in love with the river and being in the canyon and the magic of that. And ultimately, and then she went to Glen Canyon from there. She was a folk singer as well as an actress, always had an activist heart. And when the damming of Glen Canyon took place, she went from being an aspiring actress to an aspiring real activist. That became the centerpiece of her life. And she always performed. She sang her protest. She sang her her vision. Yeah, that's it, it's interesting. She and she, I guess she got it. They offered her a gig. That this is how you get on the river. You can perform for the guests on the uh, during right, the trips. On the banks of the river. Right. At, yeah. At night, serenade the guests at night, and you can come along and right. combine the two things that turned out to be her strongest passions: the right. river and music and storytelling. Yeah, uh, Martha Ham. Anything you'd like to say about Katie Lee? Um. There was none like her. Um, Ken often said, what would it have been like had we met during the 50s when the dam was being being built? Um, they did not become friends and, of course, partners in fighting Glen Canyon Dam until well after the dam was, was completed. But they were a, a dynamic pair. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, I, I don't know, uh, Frederick Swanson, did you know Katie Lee? I did not, although mm-hmm. I heard her speak on several occasions. Uh, yeah. An amazing person. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Ken Slight. We'll go around the panel and we'll talk about Ken Slight. He's, he's an iconic figure. You know, Even if he'd never appeared on Monkey Ranch Gang, he's uh, he's very well known. Uh, what, why do you think? Why, why is he so well known? Why, such an icon. I'll start. No. Okay. Uh, I, I think... Um, he was a character and deeply committed to the canyons um, long before Ed Abbey met him. Ed Abbey noticed that. That's why he ended up in the book Seldom Seen Smith. And, uh, and, and of course, Abbey just brought him, caricatured him and brought him more to life. But... Honestly, I never knew much. <clears throat> Sounds like we've lost uh, one of our guests. Go ahead. Well, I, <clears throat> yeah, I never knew uh, seldom seen Smith for quite some years. I worked with Ken um, for five or six years, and he was such a strong uh, character, teaching, leading, um, and being involved with lawsuits like saving rainbow bridge and so on that had nothing to do with that fictionalizing of him as seldom seen smith mm. uh, i'm not sure which of our guests we still have we still have frederick swanson on with us I'm here. Uh, okay great uh t- tell me about uh, ken slate well i met ken at a uh, sort of a rendezvous that the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance held down at his, his and Jane Slight's Pat Creek Ranch in the mid-1980s. And he was already a legend by then, of course. Um, many of us knew of him. But um, really kind of an unassuming guy, uh, obviously at home in the backcountry, but um, very congenial. And when we met up uh, again just recently in planning this exhibit, uh, he remembered all about those days and 
just a, a sharp and engaging guy. Mm. I think we have Davia Nelson back with us. We do. Okay, great. Uh, I, I learned from a Crimea River that uh, Ken Slight uh, had sort of a, what, a quote-unquote normal, um, <laughs> I don't know, Mormon background in Salt Lake even. Um, but at some point he, did, he fell in love with that country. Yeah, he uh, was in Salt Lake, and he and his wife and his children, he just felt the pull of the river and of nature, and he moved his family from Salt Lake to Escalante and uh, just got really pulled into the life of the rivers there and into the wild in many ways. And I think that marriage couldn't hold under that, and Ken wound up there by himself, People talk about a lot of the river afters, Brad Dimmick and very people, various people talk about when they knew Ken and first got into river after Ken was running an outfitting company and living out of the cab of his truck and was sort of this cowpoke of a guy with just his, his I mean, Martha's story of Ken saying to her, I was been waiting for you, that just strikes me as quintessential Ken. His Yes, he was married, and yes, he had a family, and he had a much more kind of politically right-wing upbringing, and he just said ultimately it was the river that changed him and brought him into the kind of perspective that he brings to everything now and, and the fight that he's fought for all these decades. Mm. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to pick, the, pick it up there, how the river changed him, how the river changes other people. Um, and uh, get into uh, what happened there in Glen Canyon and the activism. Uh, We'll hear more uh, sound clips from Crime River and other clips that uh, Martha has brought to us, and uh, we'll talk more about this exhibit. The exhibit is Glen Canyon, A River Guide Remembers, and we're talking with Davia Nelson, one of Public Radio's kitchen sisters, in fact, from her kitchen, we understand, author and river historian Frederick Swanson, and uh, Martha Hamm, who led the creation of this exhibit. More following the break. UPR was made possible today with a program day sponsorship from Barty and Clemens Kretschmar of Logan, who are returning to Germany and would like to thank all of UPR's members and UPR for being their lifeline to sanity. Corn agriculture spread quickly throughout Utah with the emergence of the newly developed culture that we now call the Fremont. Their population peaked with widespread agriculture, large villages, and artistic expressions between 900 and 1200 AD. During their final centuries in Utah, the social fabric holding Fremont culture together became strained by scarcity in land, drought, and population growth. These stressors caused conflict and inequality, resulting in the abandonment of a distinct Fremont lifestyle. However, the Fremont way of life did not end suddenly. Rather, Fremont culture ended much in the same way it began, through the blending of ideas and practices over time. This segment of Anthropology, What's It to You, has been made possible by our members and the USU Museum of Anthropology collection, including pre-Columbian Peruvian ceramics, Indonesian textiles, and Great Basin. Details at anthromuseum.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. There's a uh, museum exhibit. In Green River, Utah, it's called Glen Canyon of River Guide Remembers, and that is running through March 23rd of 2019, and the museum is open uh, to the public. Um, it uh, features iconic Utah outfitter Ken Slight. He began his river guiding career in Glen Canyon during the mid-50s, and he knew, of course, with the coming of the dam, the condition of the canyon was terminal. He used every ray of daylight to memorize every detail of the canyon before inundation and to immerse himself into the lives of seminal guides who preceded him. He's now 88 years old, and he was uh, very involved, I, I take it, Martha Hamm, in the uh, creation of this exhibit? Yes, he was. And how we present the exhibit is a seven-day river trip, as though Ken would have led it in 1959. And Ken tells stories on river trips, and so we did that within the exhibit, about some of the canyon characters, uh, Bert Loper, David Rust in particular. And as Frederick mentioned earlier, Ken had played a pivotal role in seeing that those historic canoes were rescued and they're now owned by the National Park Service. But... um, We have historic boats there, the Quist, who have been very involved in Glen Canyon and Ken's Piers. Um, 
we have an old 10-man raft that is that is showcased there. So, yes, Ken is our guide. However, you get to learn about a lot of other different people in the canyon, and particularly some folks that most uh, even accomplished river guides aren't particularly aware of. We, we took a page out of the Kitchen Sisters book and uh, use the term hidden features. The Kitchen Sisters have series Hidden Kitchens, Hidden World of Girls, and these are stories that are not uh, common to the River Runners. The story of Jean Phil Foster, how Georgie White began her river running, Georgia O'Keeffe. You, you notice I'm naming women. <laughs> mm. um, but um, and, and this is, of course, what Ken would want is uh, for people to learn about the many people um, of Glen Canyon. Uh, let's uh, before we uh, turn to our other panels here, um, I want to hear a couple more clips. Uh, first of all, um, let's hear uh, Ken Slight discovering the canyon his description of, of that. And then we'll uh, move to a, a clip from Katie Lee. She talks about smell the river. Very evocative. Let's hear these two back to back. When I first saw it, it wasn't from the river. It was uh, coming down by horseback. And we decided to, to stop at the mouth and camp there. Then we hike up to up the canyon, Clear Creek. When I first, I say, discovered it discovered for myself. It was the most amazing thing because it was covered a bunch of willows around it. I think they were willows. And then push those apart and you walk in, there's just a big basin there. And of course, here's the great big cavern. There on the, the sand bottom was moss grass-covered type of thing. It was green. A lot of that was green when I first saw Then there was that stream of water coming down, a little waterfall from up above. And I didn't see at that time anybody, any mark of civilization. Most beautiful thing, I think, that one of the big beautiful things I ever saw. It is June of 1954, a year after my Grand Canyon powerboat run. Three trips this year, one on the San Juan and two in Glen Canyon. My way paid with River Stories and Arizona Highways magazine and singing beside a driftwood fire at day's end. What knocks me out about these rivers is their smell. The only way I can describe it is to call it more dry than wet, more dusty than dewy, pungent, earthy, not fishy. A clean dirt smell, most effective on an upstream wind when the rivers are nice and silty. I call it the Great Mother's Cologne. It keeps me wrapped in its aura, a kind of synesthesia. My ears feel it, and I certainly taste it. Even back in Hollywood sometimes, I will smell it in my dreams and wake up smiling. So that you just heard from Katie Lee, Smells of the River. Previously, uh, Ken Slight discovering the canyon. Now that is from uh, Taylor Green's uh, piece. He's a National Geographic producer. Taylor Graham. Taylor Graham. Yes. Taylor Graham. And this is, uh, tell me the piece, Martha. Yeah. Th uh, Taylor is part of a team, the National Geographic Explorers, and they have been uh, studying Glen Canyon, uh, Lake Powell. They came to Pat Creek Ranch and just made a beautiful little eight-minute film that uh, premiered at the Telluride Mountain Film Festival. And this is an audio clip from the film they just completed. Mm, wonderful. Uh, thanks for bringing these clips in. Um, so I want to turn back to Davy Nelson. Uh, you said a phrase that the river changed, Ken, something to that effect. Um, you're, you've been a lot on the river. Martha has as well. I'm not sure. Uh, Frederick Swanson, do you run the river or just talk to river runners? I get down to Green with my family when I can. Yeah. Obviously, that's upstream from Glen Canyon. Right, right. Reservoir. Yeah, I've been down to Green as, as well. Beautiful, beautiful place. So, Davian Nelson, what, what is it about the river? Changes people. 
Brings people back. Never, yeah, I'd never heard that uh, Katie Lee quote. What is it? Mother Earth's cologne? Yeah, I think what so. She, oh, my God. I mean, that's part of it, isn't it? You know, there's something... The remoteness, the power of the water, the power and also the um, gentleness of the river, that constant current, the flow. I mean, it's embarrassing almost to kind of use those kind of words, They've, but it is the truth of it. And all that life that is within the river and on the banks of the river and then the trees and canyons. And there's, there's I think people seek church in so many ways. Um, and I know Utah in particular has such a connection to a church. And I think um, there, I mean, there's no accident that so many of the names of river rapids and uh, different formations within canyons are given names like Cathedral Rock. And I mean, they do inspire, I think, in people that sense of awe and wonder and the creator. And um, there is a deep magic and a kind of a dare I say oneness um, and just thrill also let's just talk about the just sheer thrill of being on a running river hmm. Martha Ham what what brings you back you've run a lot of rivers done a lot of yeah. river running what's what, what is it about it what draws you in literally the river um, there's a phrase don't push the river you can't push the river and being in the flow and as you're floating into a rapid, sometimes you have to wait. And it's a little unnerving to be in the right position to wait. Um, and then push ahead into something that uh, is frightening, um, exciting. And then 20 seconds later, <laughs> it's over. And you feel this elation of doing something that you didn't think that you could do. And I think that's part of Ken's reference when he says that the, Kent, the river changed me. Um, but it, it, it's hard work, but it's also patience. I think that's, for me, what has come from my time with the river. And I hear many people say that. Hmm. Uh, let me turn to Frederick Swanson. Uh, the people you've talked to, Ken Slight, Dave Rust. Um, wh what is it? What is it that changes people about the river? Well, I, I think uh, Martha and, and Davia expressed it very well. Uh, there's a timelessness to being on the water. and I tend to think of the evenings by the river when the light's fading on the cliffs and the willows are bending in the current and there's that swish of the stream. It puts you in a different frame of mind. Uh, I don't know, it's just a, a wonderful way to connect with the earth. Mm. And then some people have made this their whole life, right? Uh, Ken Slight, uh, Dave Rust. Tell me a little bit more, Frederick Swanson, about Dave Rust. In many ways, Dave Rust was the pioneer in outfitting in Glen Canyon. He was leading trips there beginning in the 1920s through the 1930s and uh, had a long history himself with the river, dating back to the 1890s when he had uh, joined some placer miners who were part of a, a small-scale boom on the river trying to find gold in its um, sandbars. And at that time, this was 1897, he decided that he could probably make more money guiding tourists down the river than he could uh, shoveling sand. But it took him some years. He uh, outfitted horse-packing trips throughout the Colorado Plateau. And in 1923, he finally got back to the river and began taking um, several parties a year down the river for the next couple of decades. These would have been boats that we wouldn't, uh, you know, it's not, it's not rubber rafts at that point, right? It's really uh, remarkable to see these boats that are on display, and I'm so glad that uh, Martha and the others were able to obtain these uh, with Ken's help for display at, at the uh, John Wesley Powell Museum. They're 14 and 16 foot canvas covered canoes with a collapsible metal frame. And these were packable boats that uh, Rust would have, would either uh, carry down by horseback or have shipped down to the put in on Glen Canyon at height. And uh, being portable, it, they could 
pack them back up at the end of the trip. But to appearances, they, they look a little bit small and flimsy, and this is what he used for his week-long trips down that river. And, and a person like Dave Russ, that's that you're you're on the river, I, I guess, all all summer, right? Spring, summer, into fall. He actually made uh, two or three trips a year, and he he did this as an adjunct to his horse packing business, where he would guide clients on on the uh, backcountry trails all through the Colorado Plateau, but. What he would sometimes do if a client had a longer period of time is they might start, say, at Bryce Canyon, ride by horseback and pack string all the way over to Torrey and Hanksville and down to the river at height. And there, uh, Dave would exchange what he called his land ponies for what he, he termed his water ponies, these, these little collapsible canoes. And they'd finish their whole adventure with uh, a week or ten days on the river, which strikes me as just a, a wonderful way to to experience the the whole range of the Colorado Plateau. Yeah, I mean, if you're into adventure, that's that's the way to go. Yeah, that sounds that sounds wonderful. I want to make a transition um, to uh, to activism, and uh, you know, the people who loved the river, loved Glen Canyon, like. Uh, Ken Slight, Katie Lee, and others. Um, now, at a certain point, 1950s are coming up against the federal government, who wants to wants to build a dam. Uh, let's get into this by hearing a portion of "Cry Me a River," Kitchen Sisters' piece. This is uh, Katie Lee's conversion to activism. I wasn't paying any attention to anything except the immense, incredible beauty and wildness and solitude of this place. When I heard that they were thinking of damming this river, I said, oh, they wouldn't do that. At 11.30 on the morning of October 15, 1956, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, from the White House, triggered a blast far smaller than the atomic explosions now nearly so commonplace. I remember being in the canyon the day before President Eisenhower pushed the button and blasted the first blast off of the walls. And I heard the sound. It just brought me to my knees. And from that minute on, the songs turned into protest songs. Miss Lee went out to fight. <laughs> Been fighting ever since. <laughs> Three cheers for the Reclamation Bureau. Freeloaders with souls so puro wiped out the good Lord's work in six short years. So that's from Crimea River. You heard uh, Katie Lee there uh, speaking and singing. Uh, so Davy Nelson, this uh, Crimea River, that's the name of the piece. This is looking back. This is uh, from the environmentalist point of view, from the river runner's point of view. This is a failure. The loss of Glen Canyon, absolutely. The allowing, I mean, the irony and the agony of the... Um, Damming of Glen Canyon is in part heard also in that story, and probably many in Utah know this story. David Brower uh, was part of the, you know, head of the Sierra Club then, and there were there were plans for dams up near Dinosaur. There were plans for and desolation, and then the damming of the Grand Canyon. And somehow Glen Canyon, in part, got lost a bit from the protest and almost became. I mean, Martha, you can tell me if I've got this right, more of a, the sort of sacrificial lamb. It was the, the it was so remote and so few people were connected to it to have a real um, quorum, a, a population that could defend it in its way. And the damming happened almost in a way because there just, it wasn't the Grand Canyon. It wasn't this iconic canyon that was so well known. It almost became the it became the one that got away, and I think David Brower went to his grave holding that as a regret, a stone in his soul, um, that he had not been able to marshal the troops that, in fighting other dams, that one was built. And I think Ken, both Ken and Katie and many, many people, you know, really fought hard, but it, it wasn't enough at that moment. I, I think about it now, what would have happened, you know, 
it was now. What do you think, Martha and Fred? What does everyone think? Well, I recently read that David Brower feverishly fought to the very end to see if he could save Glen Canyon once he realized what was there. In fact, in January of 1963, he appealed to President Kennedy to not uh, close the gates of Glen Canyon because that was right when the gates were going to be closed. So he fought to the, he went to the White House uh, in an effort to say, let's not put this dam online. And, of course, 63 was the last bucket. The year they opened the gates, it was too late. Mm. Brower was desperate. He felt terrible. Yeah, I've I've read that as well. That he uh, that's you know the, it's the one that got away, right? And the, you know, wished he could do it differently. Uh, Frederick Swanson, what's your what's your uh, take on this? The the, the you know, there were too many uh, holes in the dam to, and then just this one just got away, or uh, an oversight, I guess, uh, or could it have been saved? Do you think? Well, we have to realize that the conservation movement in the 1950s was really just finding its feet. It was in Utah the uh, tremendous battle over trying to keep uh, two dams from being built on the Green and Yampa Rivers in Dinosaur National Monument. It was really consuming pretty much all the political capital that the the national conservation groups had. And I think it was simply uh, that there were people who knew about Glen Canyon, uh, folks like Ken Slight and and people here in Salt Lake City uh, knew about it. So it wasn't the place no one knew. But there was simply only so much that uh, conservationists could do at the time, and I think they had to pick their battles. Mm. Uh, you, in fact, we talked in this program about your book, uh, Where Roads Will Never Reach, Wilderness and Its Visionaries in the Northern Rockies. Uh, it's, you know, from point of view of an environmental success story. Um, what are lessons, this is maybe a little later, lessons there on a success and versus lessons from the Glen Canyon? Well, I think in the years since Glen Canyon, uh, uh, many people have come to realize the value of of wild, free-flowing rivers, as well as just the uh, uh, tremendous environmental changes that dams cause. And and now we have uh, very active movements in many parts of the country to dismantle certain dams, such as the the Elwha uh, on the Olympic Peninsula, and restore things like salmon runs. Uh, so, in some ways, the, the table has turned almost uh, 180 degrees from the early days of, of uh, when reclamation was king. I want to hear another clip here. This, uh, Martha, you brought this in. Uh, Von Short. Yes. Tell me a little bit about Von Short, and then we'll hear this piece. Von Short came uh, to Ken and wanted to run Glen Canyon. He knew that, of course, it was going to be inundated in 1962. He went down Glen Canyon, and they became fast and furious friends, and Glen, and Vaughn is a very talented poet. Uh, he would take hikes and look around at the landscape and float the river and craft these lovely poems in his head and come back to camp and recite them around the campfire. So here is Vaughn uh, talking about Glen Canyon. It's entitled Open the Gates, and it's a protest. Uh, it's a protest poem. We'll hear Vaughn Shore talking about it and then giving us the poem. This is Open the Gates. This is a little rondeau called Open the Gates. And the rondeau is a poem written to a very precise, exact formula. It has a certain amount of lines, and the, the rhyming has to be a certain way, etc. Probably the most famous of all is in, Fander, in Flanders Field, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, and so forth. But when I was looking back through my slides after I came back from the picketing, why, there was a slide of Claire Quist, and he, he made a well, he is a protester's protester. He had long, flowing, unkempt hair and a full beard and dark glasses, and he was carrying his sign. And uh, back in our day, you would have 
He would have looked like a Bolshevik, but these days, of course, why well, he looked like a hippie, but he was carrying this big sign, and on it, why well, it said, reopen the gates. And so I looked at that, and this little thing practically wrote itself. Open the gates and let them flow. A rushing let the water go. Drain down that stagnant pond. Let's think of the future and on beyond. There may never be another rainbow. For nature's ways are very slow. Eons to build a bridge, you know. Of the one we have, we're very fond. Open the gates. Centuries of rain and the wind must blow. Ice in the seams and the melting snow. All chip away at the sandstone's bond and still the rock may not respond. Another bridge may never grow. Open the gates. Open the gates. That's Bond Short. Uh, some protest uh, poetry. Uh, Davy Nelson, of course, as we know, um, you know, the, the, the activism, the protest didn't work. <laughs> and uh, at some point the dam was uh, the gates were closed um, and uh, the, the river filled in. We'll, we'll hear a, a, another piece, a couple of pieces from Crimey River. But I want to ask you about uh, the, your purpose for, for reviewing this history, Crimea River. Of course, it's very elegiac. There, there's, there's a lot of loss there. Um, what, was, what was your purpose in going in and doing this piece? I felt we wanted to honor these river keepers, even if they had not been successful in preventing the damming of the rivers they tried desperately to protect. I feel like, you know, history, we all build on each other. They bequeath people the legacy of their activism, of their passion, of their view of the environment. When you were talking earlier about Ken, I was thinking, Tom, about how Ken did commit to memory, I think, basically every inch of that, every mile of that canyon, to hear him recite in order, basically, every formation and living creature that he saw there. You know, he became the bard, in a way, of that canyon. And just that's the first time I'm hearing Vaughn's poem. I could listen to an hour of his rondos. That was extraordinary. Um, I think acknowledging loss, and I won't call it failure, though I guess they failed, but it wasn't failure because I think the other thing I think about rivers and why I love them so much, why I'm so drawn, is the fellowship of them that comes, either the fellowship you feel to nature and with your fellow rafters um, and with others on the river, the sanctity of it. Um, So I wanted to really get that across to any just such larger-than-life people, just epic people that could inspire the future. You know, they, they might not have gotten their moment across, but it, it seeds others. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll have our final segment. Uh, we'll hear another couple of pieces from Crimea River. And uh, we'll uh, fit in a piece from a new uh, series from the Kitchen Sisters called The Keepers. And we'll have some final words on Glen Canyon. Uh, we are talking about a, an exhibit that's happening uh, right now at uh, the John Wesley Powell River History Museum in Green River, Utah. It's called Glen Canyon, A River Guide Remembers. We have with us Davian Nelson from the uh, Public Radio's Kitchen Sisters, Martha Hamm, who led the creation of this exhibit, and uh, author and river historian Frederick Swanson. More following the break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, we are remembering Glen Canyon today. Perhaps you have a, a Glen Canyon memory or river running experience you'd like to share with us. You can reach us to upraxcess at uh, gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. 
And uh, we are talking with uh, Martha Hamm, who led the creation of the new exhibit. It's called Glen Canyon, A River Guide Remembers, and that's uh, happening right now, in fact, uh, into March of 2019 at the John Wesley Powell River History Museum in Green River, Utah. Davy Nelson is with us, one of Public Radio's Kitchen Sisters, and author and river historian Frederick Swanson is with us as well. We did receive an email. Uh, this is from Bob in St. George. He says, two great books for uh, listeners to read, The Emerald Mile and Big Water Little Boats. Are you uh, familiar with those books? I, Emerald Mile, probably. I wasn't yes. aware of the other one. Yeah. Um, yes, I uh, I endorse that. The Emerald Mile is a really exciting book about uh, a speed record of a dory through the Grand Canyon in the high water year of 1983. And then, of course, the uh, real panic and crisis that the Glen Canyon Dam, the Bureau of Reclamation, was in because the water was lapping up right to the tippy top of the of the dam walls, and they actually even plastered plywood on the top mm, <laughs> to right. keep it from spilling over. But yes, that's a that's a wonderful wonderful mm. book. And uh, let's see, the other one that he uh, that uh, our uh, listener mentions is Big Water Little Boats. Uh, we'll also put in a plug for uh, Frederick Swanson's, uh, or uh, uh, let's see, Frederick Swanson's uh, book. Let me pull this up. Dave Rust, A Life uh, in the Canyons. Uh, so let's hear, uh, before we close here, I want to uh, put in a plug here for the new series from the Kitchen Sisters. Uh, we'll hear a little clip here from uh, Hip Hop Archive. Davey Nelson, you want to... Tell us about the keepers. Sure. Well, I think in part from our work of thinking and documenting about the lives of river keepers, and even in all our work, we're always, uh, we always say we've always relied on the kindness of archivists and that they are um, some of the unsung heroes of our nation. And we decided to start a series that premieres on Morning Edition in July. It's called The Keepers. It's stories of activists, archivists, rogue librarians, curators, collectors, and historians. We say keepers of the culture and the cultures and collections that they keep. And uh, we, this is the first story in the series, a little, little snip from the opening story. It's called Archiving the Underground, the Hip Hop Archive of Harvard. Let's hear this Hip Hop Archive. Every art form has their standards that they've placed in the canon, mathematics, Science, everybody has their greats, and somebody placed them there. People in visual art world say, hey, okay, this is what's going in the Louvre. This is it. And I think hip hop needs the same thing. This is the archive. Archiving the underground is what we do. The Hip Hop Archive began at UCLA, late 90s. I taught urban speech communities there. Students said, we want to do work on hip hop. I said, best performance, but it's not a speech community. They said, we'll be back. They came back with the most amazing projects. They showed the elements of hip hop, rapping, emceeing, poetry or rhyming, b-boy, b-girl dance, and graffiti art, and what it meant to their lives. I'm Marcelina Morgan, founding director of the Hip Hop Archive and professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. My students, when they were graduating, would say, I collected this. This is from hip hop. Boombox. You have to keep it. Turntable. I'm a linguistic anthropologist. Anthropologists love material culture. Adidas. I couldn't throw it away. Spray paint they use of graffiti. So I started having all this stuff. Then all these students were like, well, I think it should be called an archive because an archive is important. Pieces of hip hop history. I remember when Marcy shared her idea with me and I thought, oh my God, I'm no fan of hip hop. But you didn't have to be Albert Einstein to realize that this was a brilliant idea, the world's first archive of the hip-hop and rap movement. Imagine if someone had thought of this when jazz was at its zenith. Why don't we have the jazz archive at Harvard? Of course it would have been turned down, but in retrospect they would have been a genius. I'm Henry Louis Gates Jr., professor at Harvard, director of the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. 
why hip-hop at Harvard? Harvard is a high level of genius, so it's hip-hop to me. So that's uh, Hip Hop Archive, an excerpt there. That's part of the series, new series from the Kitchen Sisters, The Keepers. Davey Nelson, that'll be on Morning Edition this month. Starting July 10th. It'll oh, in July, okay. Every Tuesday in July, exactly. Uh, every Tuesday in July, starting July 10th. Okay. Oh, and to... also, may I just say to your listeners, we are um, doing a whole project called The Keeper of the Day. It'll be social media stories for a year, every day, almost like baseball cards where we're featuring keepers of all kinds. And we would love to hear from you if you have an idea or a story at kitchen at kitchensisters.org, kitchen at kitchensisters.org, or go to our website. Okay, that sounds like a fun fun way to participate. I uh, just have a, a couple of minutes left. I want to go to Martha Hammond, Frederick Swanson, and Davey Nelson, just 30 seconds each uh, to wrap up on Glen Canyon. Anything else you'd like to say, Martha? Yes, please come to the exhibit in Green River where you can experience a seven-day river trip in Glen Canyon as it was and um, and see the boats that were used in the 50s uh, and in 1923 with Dave Russ, these canoes that were rowed um, and listen to more of Vaughn Short, Katie Lee. We have a listening station. Please wonderful, come. wonderful. That's ongoing now. John Wesley Powell River History Museum in Green River, Utah. Uh, Frederick Swanson, uh, last words here, 30 seconds. Well, my thanks go to Martha and her, her uh, uh, helpers, Ryan and Megan, for putting this exhibit together and working with Ken and Jane on this uh, tremendous project. It, uh, I was able to attend the opening, and I'd really recommend if you have a chance to get through Green River uh, do take this in it's a it's a wonderful exhibit David Nelson got the keepers uh, going um, people can respond to that of course would you be back on the river oh yeah guess, Martha uh-huh. and I were on the phone yesterday yeah. making plans just half the joy of planning a river trip is just imagining all the rivers you might do as you <laughs> get to the plan for the one river you will and Utah is always number one I have to say it well, thank you to everyone. Uh, Davey Nelson, thank you so much. And you can uh, find information at Kitchen Sisters. Uh, let's see. The, let me pull on my Kitchensisters.org. Uh, Martha Ham, thank you for coming thank in. Thank you. And Frederick Swanson, thank you so much. You're welcome. appreciate the time. And uh, let's go out with uh, the, the conclusion of Crimea River. This is uh, Ken Slight's. Re- uh, this is the closing. You'll hear a bit of Ken Slight and then uh, the song. I hate to even mention the word Lake Powell. We call it Lake Fowl now. It's just a reservoir, big deep reservoir. The water is blue, there's no doubt about that, against that red rock. But my problem is I know what's underneath. statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.